This is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. This is a bonus episode of the podcast featuring Congressman John R. Lewis of Georgia. Last Saturday, March 7th, President Obama and Congressman Lewis spoke in Selma, Alabama, near the Edmund Pettus Bridge, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, when Lewis and other voting rights activists were attacked by Alabama state troopers. Like many others that day, Lewis was beaten with a billy club. He sustained a skull fracture and was later taken to the hospital. Going back to the age of four, Lewis has clear memories of his past, but of that day, he says, Almost 50 years later, I cannot recall how I made it back across the bridge. I thought I was going to die. Lewis recently co-authored the best-selling graphic memoir, March, Book One, and is the recipient of numerous awards from eminent national and international institutions, including the United States' highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The Institute's Elliot Gerson, Vice President of Public and Policy Programs, interviewed Lewis last summer for the McCloskey Speaker Series a regular event at the Institute featuring leaders who have a far-reaching impact on society. Here are Elliot Gerson and Congressman John Lewis. It is really a great pleasure and a privilege to have a conversation this evening with John Lewis, uh, a legend in the civil rights movement, uh, a member of Congress from Atlanta for now almost three decades, um, often referred to as the conscience of the Congress, a recipient of our nation's highest civil honor, uh, the Medal of Freedom. I want to give special thanks to Bonnie and Tom McCluskey, uh, who make this series possible. <laughs> Congressman Lewis has just written an absolutely remarkable book. Uh, it's actually a trilogy and he'll be available to sign, sign copies of it afterwards. Uh, book one is called March. Uh, his co-author is here, and I'd like to recognize his co-author, Andrew Aiden. Andrew, would you please stand up? This is a, a graphic and beautifully illustrated trilogy that combines personal memoir, history, and lessons in, in morality. It's destined to be a classic uh, for teens and young people, and, and frankly, it's a heck of a read for anybody, and, and I strongly recommend it. And interestingly, and we'll talk about this a little bit, it takes the form of, of a comic book, uh, and it's beautifully, beautifully illustrated. It's received already extraordinary recognition it's won the Robert F. Kennedy Award, uh, the Coretta Scott King Author Award from the American Library Association. Washington Post said it should be in every school and every library in the United States. It's also, interestingly, because of its format, up for all kinds of awards as a comic book. Uh, it's up for three Eisner Awards and uh, three Harvey Awards, the Eisners, I guess, are the Oscars of comic books, and, and the Harveys must be the, the, the Golden Globes. Uh, and, and it's been on New York Times bestseller list for 32 weeks, and I can't imagine there's ever been a book about the civil rights movement that's had anything like that. And, and, 
And you know, one other thing, we actually have, have a meeting going on here on our campus this week with people from all over the country discussing the common core in, in public education in the United States. And it's perhaps the ideal book for the common core with respect to civil rights, and I'm sure it's gonna be recognized as that. You all who are here in, in the Greenwall tent with us tonight have a biography. Most of you, of course, know a little bit about Congressman Lewis, already seen tonight. Many of you are, are lucky uh, to have him as your congressman uh, from Atlanta. Uh, but there are many more people who are listening and watching this both tonight and will be in the future. So let me just take a minute before I engage in a conversation with them and then I'll open it up to all of you just to remind all of you a little bit about this remarkable man. John Robert Lewis was born in 1940. His father was a sharecropper and they lived on 110 acres of cotton, of corn and peanuts in a rural corner of the deeply segregated South, uh, a corner of Alabama. Uh, at that time, of course, uh, when he began school, it was before Brown against Board of Education. Brown was decided when he was just 14, but of course Brown had no effect on, on his own schooling. Uh, a year after Brown was decided, he heard a, hermit, a sermon on the radio, I think it was a radio station from Montgomery, as I remember reading, by someone he'd never heard of named Martin Luther King. And then he learned about the Montgomery bus boycott, and these activities inspired a life of activism. In 1957, he left Alabama to attend the American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville, where he became a leader in the efforts to desegregate the lunch counters in Nashville. He was arrested there the first of many times. He went on to participate as a freedom writer in 1961. He chaired the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and he helped with a march on Washington in 1963 and he actually at that march was the youngest speaker. After that march, the Civil Rights Act 50 years ago became law but like Brown against Board of Education, effects of that legislation took some time to actually have effect. In March of 1965, John Lewis was a leader of the March on Selma. After crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they were attacked by state troopers. He was severely beaten, and indeed his skull was fractured. The images of this and his personal entreaties to President Johnson sped the passing of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He got involved in politics in 1981. He was elected to Congress in 1986. And ever since, he has continued to devote his attention and his extraordinary passion and power to issues of civil rights, to human dignity, to health care for all, and to public education. I mentioned some of the highlights of his life and the early civil rights period for a reason that I think was probably a motivating factor as well for him to write this book. And that is simply that for people, frankly, much younger than I am, who did not grow up during the 60s and weren't shaped by the 60s, the events in that seminal decade are barely understood. And even for those of us who did live through them, 
the, the memory is fading and the significance isn't as great as it should be. So I think it's very, very important to be remembered about, to remember and be reminded about these events and there's probably no one who can do that more effectively. So what, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about, about your history, a little bit about your book, and then a little bit about contemporary issues. Let, let's start a little with, with something about your own history. One of the things that's fascinating about this book is the amount of time that's devoted to your life as a very young boy. Living on a farm, raising chickens, your experiences in your little rural community, your experiences with your family, for example, driving from your rural home to Buffalo, New York, and what you experienced on the way. Why and how was your early childhood such an important influence in your life as an activist? Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted and, and, and really very pleased to be here, to see so many wonderful people, to see some uh, old friends, to see uh, Sam Brown, here, his lovely wife. Um, we, we worked together to be here with my co-author, Andrew Iden, to be here, this beautiful place. You know, I could live here. Well, <laughs> we'll have you back as much as you'd like. <laughs> but, but, but thank you very much. Now, it is true that I did grow up in rural Alabama, uh, 50 miles from Montgomery, outside of a little place called Troy. It is true that my father was a sharecropper, a tenant farmer. But back in 1944, when I was four years old, and I do remember when I was four, my father had saved $300, and with the $300, he bought 110 acres of land. We still own that land today in rural Alabama, 10 miles from Troy, 50 miles from Montgomery. On this farm, we raised a lot of cotton and corn, and peanuts, hogs, cows, and chickens. And it was my responsibility on the farm to care for the chickens. And I fell in love with raising chickens like no one else could raise chickens. <laughs> I, I really did. And uh, as a matter of fact, last weekend I was back there on that farm for a family reunion. And uh, one of my um, grandnephew, I guess, is raising some chicken for the 4-H club that he's a part of. And it delighted me so much. But as a little boy growing up there, uh, I, I wanted to be a minister. I wanted to preach the gospel. So from time to time, with the help of my brothers and sisters and cousins, we would gather all of our chickens together in the chicken yard. <laughs> like each and every one of you are gathered here. And, and my brothers and sisters and cousins were lying the outside of the chicken yard, but they would help make up the audience, the congregation. And I would start speaking, uh, preaching, and when I look back on it, some of these chickens would bow their heads. Some of these chickens would shake their heads. They never quite said amen. But I'm convinced that some of those chickens that I preached to in the 40s and the 50s tended to listen to me much better than some of my colleagues listened to me today in the Congress. <laughs> And, and, and as a matter of fact, some of those chickens were just a little more productive. <laughs> At least they produce eggs. Uh, growing up there, when we would visit the little town of Troy, visit Montgomery, visit Tuskegee, visit Birmingham, I saw those signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting, 
or to go downtown to the theater on a Saturday, all of us little black children had to go upstairs to the balcony. All of the little white children went downstairs to the first floor. And I would come home and ask my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, why? And they would say, that's where it is. Don't get in the way, don't get in trouble. But in 1955, 15 years old in the 10th grade, I heard about Rosa Parks. I heard Dr. King on that old radio. And the words of Dr. King inspired me to find a way to get in the way. I was so inspired by Dr. King that in 1956, at the age of 16, with some of my brothers and sisters and cousins, we went down to the public library, trying to get library card, trying to check out some books. And we were told by the librarian that the library was for whites only and not for colors. I never went back to the Pike County Public Library in Troy, Alabama, until July 5th, 1998, for a book signing of my book, Walking with the Wind. <laughs> and, and hundreds of blacks and white citizens showed up. End of the program, they gave me a library card. <laughs> I, I think it says something about the distance we've come and the progress we've made. But I remember taking that trip to Buffalo much earlier. Yeah, you talk about that in this, and, and I, I think that would be, it would be hard for so many of our children today to appreciate the challenges you faced in your family just driving through the states you did to get to Buffalo. Well, we left rural Alabama, traveling from Troy to Montgomery to Birmingham, through Tennessee, through Kentucky, and we really couldn't make a stop for food, a rest stop, until we got to Ohio. Um, I remember much earlier, before we left, my mother and her sister, my aunt, stayed up late that night preparing food, cooking pies, cakes, frying chicken, putting in shoeboxes. So you had to bring the food with you. Oh, yes. Um, we didn't have alumifont and had brown wrapping paper wax paper, uh, so we could have something to eat along the way. So you, you mentioned Reverend King, and uh, you first heard him on the radio, and of course you had a, a very extensive relationship with, with him after that. Just tell us about him and, and why he had such power and influence, and why he inspired you in the way he did. Well, just listen to Martin Luther King Jr. on the old radio, I felt like he was speaking directly to me. Like he was saying, John Robert Lewis, you too can do something. You can make a contribution. So when I finished high school in May of 1957, I wanted to attend a little school 10 miles from my home. It was called Troy State College, now known as Troy University. Submitted my application, my high school transcript. I never heard a word from the school. So I wrote a letter to Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I didn't tell my mother, my father, any of my sisters or brothers, didn't tell my teachers. And he wrote me back and sent me a round trip Greyhound bus ticket and invited me to come to Montgomery. In the meantime, I'd been accepted at a little college in Nashville, Tennessee. So I boarded a Greyhound bus. And, and Troy, of course, wouldn't accept black Troy students. Troy did not, at that time, accept a black student. So I went off to school to Nashville. I remember so well, September 1957, 17 years old. 
An uncle of mine gave me a $100 bill, more money than I ever had, gave me one of these big trunks, a foot locker, the one that you could open up and bring back together, had the drawers, the curtains, where you can hang some of your clothes. I put everything that I owned except those chickens in that foot locker <laughs> and went off to Nashville. And after being in Nashville for about three weeks, I told one of my teachers that I'd been in contact with Dr. King. And this teacher informed Dr. King that I was in Nashville. They had studied together at a school in Atlanta. So Dr. King got back in church and suggested when I was home for spring break to come and see him. So in March of 1958, by this time I'm 18 years old, my father drove me to the Greyhound bus station. I boarded the bus, traveled the 50 miles from Troy to Montgomery. And a young lawyer by the name of Fred Gray, who was a lawyer for Rosa Parks, Dr. King, and the Montgomery Movement, and later became our lawyer during this freedom ride in the march from Selma to Montgomery, met me and drove me to the First Baptist Church, pastor by the Reverend Rath Abernathy in downtown Montgomery. He ushered me in. I saw Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy standing behind the desk. I was so scared. I didn't know what to say or what to do. And Dr. King said, are you the boy from Troy? Are you John Lewis? And I said, Dr. King, I am John Robert Lewis. I gave my whole name. <laughs> and from that moment on, I knew I could not turn back. It was something about the man, his presence, what he said and the way he said it inspired me. When you listen to Martin Luther King Jr., you had to move. You had to be committed and become dedicated to a cause, to a movement. Well, we're, we'll come back to your time in Nashville, but I have to ask you, given all of that, how did you feel when you heard that he was assassinated? And what did you think that would do to the civil rights movement? When I heard that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated, I was in Indianapolis, Indiana, campaigning with Robert Kennedy. And I had heard that Dr. King had been shot, but I didn't know um, that he had been assassinated. He just had been shot. And I would happen to organize this rally for Robert Kennedy. And Robert Kennedy came in and spoke, and he made the announcement that Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. And I, I just felt weak and in disbelief. And I cried, and like so many others in that audience. And I had what I call an executive session with myself for a moment. I said, well, we still have Bobby. And two months later, he was gone. Nashville. Uh, and, and the lunch counters, a, a seminal episode in, in the civil rights movement. And you were a leader of that. Uh, Nonviolent protest. What lessons did you learn in terms of what it means to be a leader and what it means to affect social change from your early days in Nashville? Well, I discovered in, in Nashville attending the nonviolent workshop, the training, that you have to be prepared, be willing, committed. If you're going to lead, you must be a headlight and not a taillight. But during those days, some members of the media press would walk up and say, are you one of the leaders? Are you one of the spokesperson? Or 
I want to say I'm just one of the participants. But I grew up, I literally grew up when I was sitting on those lunch counter stools. We studied the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence. We studied what Gandhi attempted to do in South Africa, what he attempted to accomplish there. We studied what he accomplished in India. We studied Thoreau and civil disobedience. We studied the great religions of the world. We studied what Dr. King was all about in Montgomery. And many of us in Nashville grew to accept the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence as a way of life, as a way of living, not simply as a technique or as a tactic. So when someone would come up and spit on us, or put a lighted cigarette out in our hair, or down our backs, pour hot water, hot coffee on us, or pull us off the lunch counter stool, we didn't strike back. We adhere to the way of, of love, the way of peace, the way of nonviolence. I remember so well, like it was yesterday, when we heard that uh, on a particular day that we may be arrested. I wanted, in Nashville, the movement was so disciplined. Dr. King would come to Nashville and said it was the most disciplined movement of the local movement because we had a great teacher there by the name of Jim Lawson, who had traveled to India. He was part of the Methodist student movement. He had studied Gandhi. He was a pacifist, and later became a student at Vanderbilt University. We wanted to be dressed in an orderly fashion. We wanted to look good. And I needed a, I wanted a new suit, and I didn't, couldn't afford it. Um, most of the young people in Nashville would put on ties. The young ladies would put on stockings and heels. It was the whole image that we were trying to project. So I went downtown Nashville to a used men's store and bought a new suit. And this suit cost $5. And my young co-author a few weeks ago located the photograph and blew it up. And I tell you, I was looking sharp in that suit. <laughs> I bet you were. And so I went to jail with a sense of pride and with a sense of dignity. And with a that nice was, suit. And, and, a, and, a, and a, for me, it was a new suit. I said to someone the other day, if I still had that suit, I probably could sell it on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a very valuable suit. Uh, let, let's talk about the, the Edmund Pettus Bridge for a minute and, and Selma and what that was like. You talk about the challenge to remain peaceful in the face of indignity and violence. Just tell us what it was like. You're crossing the bridge, and then what happened? Well, on Sunday, March 7, 1965, 600 of us, men, women, and children, left church, came out into a parking lot where we conducted a nonviolent workshop saying that we would walk in an orderly, peaceful, non-violent fashion from Selma to Montgomery, that we would not block traffic or interfere anyway with traffic. We would walk on the sidewalk across that bridge. I was wearing a backpack before it became fashionable to wear backpacks. <laughs> uh, in this backpack, I had two books. 
I thought we were going to be arrested and that we were going to go to jail. I wanted to have something to read. Had one apple and one orange. I wanted to have something to eat. And since I thought we would be in jail, in jail with my friends, my colleagues, and my neighbors, I wanted to be able to brush my teeth. So I had toothpaste and toothbrush. We get to the edge of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. A young man from Dr. King's organization named Jose William said to me, John, can you swim? He saw all of this water down in the Alabama River. I said, no, what about you? He said, yes, a little. I said, we cannot jump. We got to cross this bridge and we must march from Selma to Montgomery. We get to the highest point on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Down below, we saw a sea of blue, Alabama State Troopers. And behind the state troopers on horseback, we saw Sheriff Clark Posse. Sheriff Jim Clark was a very mean man. He wore a gun on one side, a nightstick on the other side. He carried an electric cap router in his hand, and he didn't use it on cows. He wore a button on his left lapel that said, never. He had requested that all white men over the age of 21 to meet the night before to stop the march. So we just walked and came within hearing distance of the state troopers and the sheriff posse. And a man spoke up and said, our Major John Cloud of the Alabama State Troopers, this is an unlawful march. It would not be allowed to continue. I give you three minutes to disperse and return to your homes or to your church. And Jose Williams said, Major, give us a moment to kneel and pray. And the Major said, Troopers, advance. And you saw these guys putting on their gas masks. They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks, bull whips, tramping us with horses, and releasing the tear gas. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. I had a concussion at the bridge. I thought I was going to die. I thought I saw death. Almost 50 years later, I cannot recall how I made it back across that bridge, but apparently someone carried me back to the church. I do recall being back at the church. The church is full to capacity, more than 1,500 or 2,000 people on that side trying to get in to protest what had happened. And someone said, John says something to the audience. And I stood up and said something like, I don't understand it. Now, President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam, but cannot send troops to Selma, Alabama to protect people who only desires to register to vote. And the next thing I knew, I had been admitted to the Good Samaritan Hospital in Selma where a group of nuns took care of us. They were the Sisters of St. Joseph. And many of these nuns today are retired in Rochester, New York. But if it hadn't been for these sisters, I don't know what would have happened to many of us. Well, you can, you can see why it's so important that stories like that still get told. And of course, the Voting Rights Act was signed after that. L let me ask you a different kind of question, and that relates to protest and what can be effective. There are lots of revolutions around the world today. There's lots of injustice, and many people talk about and worry about whether protests can be effective just through social media or signing online petitions or tweeting. You, when you were on that bridge with everyone else, you, you had skin in the game. I mean, you, you put 
your life on the line. I gave a little blood. You gave some blood. This was this was not a, this was not uh, you know passive resistance. Do you do you see a problem with the with the lack of willingness to put people's lives on the line, put their safety at risk in protesting issues? Is do you have concerns about whether? social media kind of protest can ever replace the kinds of protests that you engaged in as a young man? I think social media is important to help reach hundreds, thousands, and millions of people, help educate and sensitize people. But it's not anything more powerful, as Dr. King would say, than the marching feet of a determined people. When people bodies and it doesn't matter whether they're black or white, Latino, Asian American, or Native American. When people moving together in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion, you can appeal to the conscience of all humankind. And that's what makes Selma so beautiful. A few days after Bloody Sunday, hundreds and thousands of people, religious leaders, priests, rabbis, nuns, Educators, history teachers, college professors came all across America and it changed America. There was demonstration in more than 80 major cities in America. There were nonviolent protests at the White House, the Department of Justice, on almost every college campus, every state, at American embassies abroad. That is powerful. But, we, you know, we. We didn't know anything about a website. You, you had no options. <laughs> no, that's right. We didn't have a cellular telephone. We didn't have a fax machine. We had old mimograph machines. In a minute, I want to come to some contemporary issues. But, but before that, let me just ask why you and Andrew chose to do this in a comic book fashion. I mean, you know, you're, it's it, one of the most profoundly significant movements in American history through a comic book. Why? Well, for several reasons, but the most important reason, we wanted to reach another generation of people, especially young people, to understand what happened and how it happened, that they too can make a contribution. You can have words, but when you make those words come alive, I think it holds the attention of children, young adults, and people my age and older. You see action. In, in, in this book, you, you see action. In book two, the cover's going to be the burning of the bus. In, in, in book two is going to be the burning of the bus. Is the freedom be the cover. And just think. The in 1961, the same year that President Barack Obama was born, in 1961, black people and white people couldn't be seated together on a Greyhound bus, leaving Washington, D.C., to travel through Virginia, through North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, on our way to New Orleans. That was drama. And people were beaten. People almost died on that bus in Anniston, Alabama, between Atlanta and Birmingham. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that for children today, young people today, just the very fact that in our very recent history, you could not get on a bus 
in Washington, D.C. as a black person and cross the Potomac River. So what kind of reaction are you, are, are you getting on, on your book tour as you're talking about well, this? Well, it had been amazing. It had been amazing. Um, Andrew Iden would tell you that the copy of the book went to a very prominent reporter at a prominent newspaper. I won't call the reporter's name, won't name the newspaper. And the reporter called and said, I don't usually do anything like this, but I just want you to know that I passed your book on to my nine-year-old son. Now he's going upstairs, dressed up in his Sunday's best, put on a cap, marching around my house, saying he's marching for equality. Um, children and adults are reading it. Teachers are teaching the book. Several colleges and universities adopted the book at required reading for all freshmen in school in late I, I August. Think, I think I heard that there are 15,000 students who are going to have this as a required book. And there never been so quickly a book that has been recommended for college students and it, it is part of a curricula. Well, it's amazing to me. And I, I'm traveling to different places and every so often I get a chance to travel to Europe and the young people, the students, they're so informed. They know, the, they know Diane Nash's name. The young lady who was the chair of the student movement in, in Nashville. These young people, they keep up with what happened. And it's important for American students to know what happened, how it happened, that they too can use the way of peace, the way of nonviolence, the way of love to make our country and our world a better place. And sometimes I think, even in the Congress, we make the book available to every member of Congress. I think we need to conduct some nonviolent workshops there. <laughs> I, uh, I, I mean, ju just the image of you at, I've never been to a comic book convention, but the, the notion that you're there presenting at a comic book convention, uh, you know, where they're presenting Spider-Man here and John Lewis here, but my, my understanding is that, that, that people were scamping out at the convention just to be able to get into your session, that it was so popular. Well, what, what's, what's going well, on here? Well, some people kept on walking up saying, and I hate to put it this way, but they said, you're the real hero. <laughs> you're the real Superman. And I told Andrew that when I go back next year, I'm going to dress with my uh, trench coat, <laughs> and I'm going to have my backpack, and uh, I'm going to play myself. <laughs> All right, I said we were going to come to some contemporary issues, and, and we are celebrating some anniversaries with a 50th anniversary of, of Lyndon Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act. And, and, you know, and you think about it, Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, perhaps the two most significant pieces of legislation that had the greatest effect in American history. Yet let me bring you to what was a tweet of yours heard around the country. And it was just weeks ago you said, if the Civil Rights Act was before Congress today, it would not pass. It would probably never make it 
off the floor for a vote. Really? I believe that. I, I believe that. There's a, there's a different climate in Washington today. It's a different environment uh, today. Uh, back in 1964, 1963, President Kennedy made one of the major speeches on the whole question of civil rights. He said it was a moral issue. The speech he delivered on June 11, 1963. President Johnson picked up where President Kennedy left off. Uh, I, I remember so well the day of the march on Washington. When the march was all over, President Kennedy invited each one of us, the 10 speakers, back to the Oval Office. And he stood in the door greeting each one of us. And he kept saying, you did a good job, you did a good job. He was beaming like a proud father. And when he got to Dr. King, he said, and you had a dream. President Lyndon Johnson picked up and got that legislation passed almost as a living memorial to President Kennedy. And it was Democrats and Republicans. If you visit my congressional office in Washington, you see me standing with Senator Everett Dirksen, the Republican leader of the Senate. From Illinois. From Illinois. There was Democrats and Republicans working together for the common good. Uh, maybe, just maybe, we can get all of this, whatever has happened in the psyche of America out of us. Let, let, let's talk about voting rights. Uh, the Shelby County case was decided last year, which struck down the preclearance provisions of, of the Voting Rights Act. What, given what you had done, given you know, the arrests, the bodily injury, fighting for voting rights, marching for voting rights, what was your reaction when that Supreme Court decision came down? When the decision came down in, in June, Last year, um, I wanted to cry. Uh, I felt saddened that so many people gave everything they had. I kept thinking about the three civil rights workers, Anna Goodman, Mika Scherner, James Shaney. Kept thinking about the people who stood in those unmovable lines trying to pass a so-called literacy test. Back in the 50s and in the 60s, people were told they could not read or write well enough. Some people were asked to count the number of bubbles on a bar of soap, the number of jelly beans on a jar. And I kept saying to myself, these guys, all of the women voted right, and one man voted right. But I said, these guys that are- You're talking about the members of the Supreme Court. Members of the Supreme Court. I said, they never stood in an unmovable line. It, they never have been required to pass a so-called literacy test. Let, let's just talk about voting rights issues. And I mean, these are now, there's legislation in many states in the country now dealing with voter ID, getting rid of early voting, uh, requiring other kinds of, of, of evidence uh, to vote. In the, in the name of, of voter fraud. And I, I recently saw the Brennan Center made a, uh, issued a statement saying that you know, you're more likely to get 
struck by lightning or see a UFO than actually found an actual incident of voter fraud. What's, what's going on here? Why isn't voting easy and simple and convenient? Well, my philosophy and my view is the vote is precious. It's almost sacred. It is the most powerful, nonviolent instrument or tool we have in a democratic society. And it should be easy. It should be accessible. I think there's a deliberate, systematic effort in our country, and it's not just a Southern thing, to make it harder and more difficult for people to participate. We should open up the process and let people come in. Someone said the other day, being able to register or being able to cast a vote should be as easy as getting a glass of clean water. Make it simple. We've talked about anniversaries of <clears throat> important issues, Supreme Court cases. Brown against Board of Education. Schools are segregated today. Our public education system, particularly for, for, for blacks and many poor people, especially in urban areas, is, is not good. Uh, relatively to many other countries in the world. What, what's happened since, since Brown? Well, we made progress, but we're not there yet. We still have a great distance to go in America before we lay down the burden of discrimination in education. We got to work and pull together at the local level, the state level, and the federal level and make it happen. It's in the best interest of our society, of an educated electorate. We have to do it. What are the most important elements that need to happen? The federal government, along with state and local, need to make the resources available. It's important that all of our children, all of our young people, receive the best possible education. We just do it. Healthcare. You've been fighting ever since you've been in Congress for health care for everyone. Is the Affordable Care Act working? Well, I think the Affordable Care Act is working. It's not perfect, uh, but it's working, and we will get there. Health care is a right, and it's not a privilege. We all should have quality, good health care. It must be accessible and affordable for everybody in America. Explain what's going on in many states. I think Georgia is one of them with respect to refusal to accept federal money for, for Medicaid. Well, I think uh, Georgia, and I tried to plead through statements, uh, everything else, to get the governor of Georgia and some of these other governors to accept and expand Medicaid. It doesn't make sense. It, to me, it just... It's dumb. It doesn't make sense when the federal government is prepared to make millions and billions of dollars available to see that all of our citizens, poor citizens in some of these states, people are dying, hospitals are closing, and they're too pride to accept the resources from the federal government. The government is prepared to fund for many years 
And then when those years up, it was still funded up to 80 to 90 percent. Uh, just one last general question before I turn it over to the audience. <clears throat> what advice would you give to the young John Lewis's out there, whether they're in rural Alabama or in Atlanta or in Chicago, as to the most effective ways to address whatever injustices they see in the world around them? What, say, what path should they take? I would say to those young would-be John Lewis's or whatever, find a way to get in the way. Find a way to get in the, in the way. way. Find a way to get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. And, and be prepared to speak up and speak out. Be bold, be courageous. You see something that is not right, something that is not fair, that is not just, you have a moral obligation, a mission and a mandate to get in the way and make some noise. And young people say, how can you be in Congress? You got arrested 40 times during, during the 60s. And I said, well, since I've been in Congress, I've been arrested five more times. <laughs> and I'm probably gonna get arrested again. Uh, I got a, my last arrest around comprehensive immigration reform. I wanted the Speaker of the House to bring a bill to the floor. It doesn't make sense for us to have millions of people living in our own country, living in the shadow, living in fear. We, we're better than that. That was Congressman John Lewis and Elliot Gerson recorded live in Aspen on July 18, 2014 for the McCloskey Speaker Series. You can discover more about our programs at our website, aspeninstitute.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow us on Twitter at Aspen Institute and at Facebook slash Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. <laughs>